Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. So how is everyone today? Sorry I'm late. It's good to be with you, though. So thanks for being gracious. My habit is two or three minutes late lately. So sorry about that. But I'm getting quicker at setting things up. So we make up for it. Um, I was here, I just in the building, just, just busy doing stuff. But uh, thank you for all being here. It's good to see you. We're still in John chapter 11 this morning. So if you want to open, we're ready for verse 38. And we've been working our way through the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And this morning we want to come to the actual part of the story where Lazarus is raised. But I want to begin with some prefacing thoughts. Um, to follow up on last week, I, we ended with this thought that Verse 38 says that Jesus was deeply moved again. And I'm not sure if I made the point well last week, so I want to make the point better this week. This word, this Greek word that is used there for deeply moved, we learned that who it's a long word, it's kind of actually hard to say. And I didn't write it out here for myself, so you kind of remember it. Yeah, it was em, embrehamomahi. <laughs> uh, I'm not Greek. Can you say that again ten times? <laughs> that this word was so full of meaning, besides just what we talk about. We think deeply moved, oh, and that's followed by verse 35. It says Jesus wept, and we just think he's moved to grieve, just like we grieve. Well, there is some truth to that, and I might not have made that point well enough last week. This this word is a Greek word that is used to really speak of a, a, almost a, an anger. And, and of course, in Jesus' case, we would know it's righteous anger, you know, righteous indignation. He sees what death has done. He sees what sin has done. And this is his creation. And, and, he's, and he's powerfully moved. Um, you know, it was a word that talked about how a horse, when it snorts or something, it, 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 it's the same word. Yeah. Um, but... Yet, we do see a word that tells us that different words in the Greek that we saw between the people crying, they're lamenting, and this word of Jesus just uh, weeping, this tear that runs down his face. So I want us to see that John put this in there for a purpose, dual purpose, I think. Number one, it does. we don't want to miss the fact that Jesus' emotions are different than the people's emotions. He is moved by emotion, though. And that, in and of itself, is there to prove his humanity. And I don't think I made that point last week. Remember, John is a theological gospel. He's teaching us who Jesus is. And he's teaching us, in this case, yes, Jesus is human. Yes, he can really cry. Yes, he can really have human emotions. And he did. So it can fittingly say that our God weeps. Our God weeps. Our God. So it, it's fitting to say, you know, when we're hurting, when we've lost loved ones, when we're in a deep emotional state, God weeps with us. Um, because he did for Mary and Mar Martha and Lazarus, and he does for you and I as well. Uh, even though he is God and he is Lord of life, and he knows 
that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I want to talk just a little bit about this idea of resurrection because I, somewhere in my mind I think I'm stating, I think I remember stating in this study that I talked about this seventh sign being the sign of the resurrection as something nobody had ever done before, which I didn't, I, I wasn't thinking about my whole biblical uh, references there. But I meant that the way John phrases this, John tells this story as the greatest of all Jesus' signs. But there truly have been other cases of resurrection, but they're different. So let's think about those. What, what do you remember about resurrection in the Old Testament? Does anybody recall? There is some stories of resurrection in the Old Testament. But then I'm going to talk about the differences. Does anybody remember the Old Testament resurrection stories? See, it's not top-of-the-mind awareness to us. And when I was just teaching that yeah, day, I said, well, this is the great one that nobody's ever done before. I, I know there was, that. but I can't remember where. Was it Jacob when he sacrificed his son? Nope. Oh, no. No. Nope. Abraham started. that was going yeah, to, Abraham. but God stopped him. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what they were. They were the two great prophets of old, Elijah and Elisha. Yeah. Okay, Elijah and Elisha. And I knew when we got right here to this resurrection story, I wanted to share a couple of these with you. Elijah resurrected the widow at Zarephath's son, okay? And Elisha, who was Elijah's uh, student and came along after Elijah, uh, Elisha resurrected the uh, widow, the Shunammite widow's son. They were both a widow's son. Uh, and the story tells us, if we had time to go back and read them in the book of Kings, uh, I believe it's in 2 Kings. Well, with the widow's son in Zarephath is 1 Kings, and the Shunammite one with Elisha is in 2 Kings. So 1 Kings 17, if you want to go back and read that this week, and 2 Kings chapter 4, those are the two stories. But they're different. They're really different than this story about Lazarus, and I want to point out why. Now, how about some New Testament Stories of re- are there any other New Testament stories of resurrection? Wasn't there one where there was a little boy that had died, and I can't remember who it was, but he laid himself on, on his body two or three times. That's the Old Testament back. we just talked about. That yeah, was, that's okay. the that's the one we were talking about in the, okay. in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, do you recall that Peter raised somebody from the dead? Mm-hmm. He did in the Book of Acts in the city of Joppa. I got to go to Joppa with the first trip to Israel, and there's a church commemorated for it. Peter raised a woman named Dorcas, or some Bibles call her Tabitha, from the dead. Now, the Apostle Paul. Remember the story of the man that fell out of the upper story window and died? Eutychus was his name, and Paul raised him from the dead in Troas. Those are recorded in the book of Acts. Jesus himself raised three people from the dead. Do you recall who they were? We know Lazarus here that we're talking about. Lazarus is the only one recorded by John in his gospel. But the others we find were uh, the widow's son of Nain when they were on a funeral procession outside the gate of the city. Jesus stopped and had pity on this poor family and raised this son right up off the funeral bier as it was being carried in the procession. And then, of course, the other was Jairus' daughter. Jairus, the uh, Roman official, his daughter uh, was raised from the dead with Jesus. That's the one that he said that that she will be raised from long distance. No, no, that was one that was... Oh, no, that was a servant. That was the servant. That's right. That was the centurion's servant. 
But this was Jairus, the official's daughter. Now, we can read about those. We don't have time to this morning, but I give them to you. The widow's son from Nain is in Luke chapter 7. Jairus' daughter story is actually in the three synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8. And then, of course, the story of Lazarus is just in John chapter 11. Now, there's some differences in these. And what the reason, the thing that I was making a point to that I didn't make a very good point a few weeks back was this story of Lazarus is different than all of them. First of all, the stories of the three by Jesus are totally different than the Old Testament and Peter and Paul's in the sense that if you go back and read them, all of them prayed to God for God to raise this dead one. But Jesus doesn't do that, as we're going to see today. Jesus is, as John has been teaching us, the Lord of life. Jesus is the creator. Jesus doesn't have to ask the Father. Jesus doesn't. And we're going to see that today. So there's a difference here in, in the feel of whose power is this that Jesus is exhibiting. He's not just, this is one of the rare times we see Jesus he all, in his ministry and his life always pointed to the Father. And even in this he does too. Because we're going to see how he prays to the Father. But when it comes time to actually do this great sign, this miracle, Jesus just speaks the words of life. Lazarus, come for him. So, he didn't have to ask the Father because to do it for him. Because he is God. And John wants us to see that. John's always teaching us who Jesus is. So, a little bit of background on the idea of resurrection. There's one more story about resurrection in the New Testament that I wonder if you remember. It's one that escapes us a lot, but it's a fascinating story. One more story. Anybody remember it? It's in Matthew chapter 27. Anybody recall it? Let's read it. It's just a couple of short verses. I have it open here. Matthew chapter 27. And I'll begin at verse 51. This is when Jesus, in verse 50, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, this is verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, that's fascinating to me. Isn't that fascinating to you? Yes. Nobody else talks about it. None of the other Gospels talk about it. Uh, just Matthew. And uh, you all, don't, nobody ever, I've never heard anybody really preach sermons about it, but isn't that fascinating? Yes, it is. What happened here in this picture? When Jesus, God made flesh, dies on the cross, we see these cataclysmic things happening. Veils torn, all of those things. are These are historical things. Matthew's a very historical gospel, telling very historical events. And boom. The graves are opened of many, and it says they're holy people, or yours might say saints. Isn't that fascinating? Who were these people? 
We don't know their names. It doesn't say any of them. Doesn't say names, their names. Um, <clears throat> we we wonder if maybe clearly they were somebody important in the story of God. You know, maybe some maybe one was like Abel, the first person murdered. Maybe what maybe Adam and Eve. There's been people speculated that Adam and Eve were were part of it. Nothing goes on to tell us, there's no record in scripture that go, or tradition really, that goes on to tell us whether they died again or whether they were translated back just up into heaven. You know, we don't know the rest of the story, but it's very fascinating to me. I don't think they died again. I think this was, a, this was the first fruits. We know that there was a strong belief in, in this, the idea of the first fruits of resurrection, that you know, there was a teaching Christ himself taught that at the end of times, there would be this resurrection of well, the bodies. Well, this was okay? as important as the end, ends of times with Jesus' resurrection. Really. And I think it's not only important as it, it is the beginning of it. I think what we understand about this is that this is the fulfillment of the resurrection uh, the of the first fruits. Okay? This is the first fruits. Makes when sense. Jesus died, there were the first fruits for, were resurrected. And who they were is not important, but it is important to think that they were glorified, okay? And that somehow everybody knew who they were. You know, I imagine if you were a Jew and you lived around Jerusalem, you knew where the holy graves were, okay? You knew where some of the holy spot sites were. Um, and remember, the first Christians believed uh, the first Christians were Jewish. So the fact that Matthew's a very Jewish gospel and he's telling the story of the gospel to a Jewish audience primarily, it, it's very important to them to hear that these Jewish saints were resurrected. Too. So I, I just throw that in there. I wanted just to have a full view of the resurrection here because we're about to look at the story of Lazarus' resurrection and see what we can learn from it. I want to look at verses 38 through 44 with you, and then I'm going to talk about what's on the television screen. There's a, well, besides that, well, <laughs> besides that, Outlook was redirected to a new server. Let's just deny that for the moment. Uh, I'm going to talk about this icon that's on the screen in just a moment, but let's look at the scripture. I'll read verse 38 through verse 44, John chapter 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always. But I have said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that thou didst send me. And when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. 
What a power-packed story filled with meaning that we don't want to miss. We started with the thought that there's that Greek word again in verse 38. As Jesus comes to the tomb, the last time we heard that, he was still a ways out from the city. But now in the presence of the tomb, in the presence of Mary and Martha, and Mary's falling at his feet, crying, in the presence of the the very grave of his dear friend, he is moved again. And he is in that, he's looking, and and think about with me, what he's, what, what, we can only imagine what was going through Jesus' mind and heart. He's looking at a tomb. Why does John tell us it's a cave with a stone in front of it? Because that would be a sepulcher. It's a common grave of the day. In, In that area, that was common. But let's don't miss a deeper thought, too. That's exactly what Jesus would be looking at in just a few days, a few months. Is He was going to be laid in a tomb. The, the scripture goes on to tell us carefully was hewn out of rock and that had a stone rolled in front of it. So it's a, it's a foreshadowing of what's actually going to happen to him as well. I, I imagine that had to go through his heart and mind. You know, when he was on the... Garden of Gethsemane, we know the anguish and the things that he thought about and what was ahead of him. We know that he prayed, Father, take this cup from me if it's possible. But So these things had to fill his heart and his mind. And John must be giving us all these details for beautiful reasons. But yes, it is a common grave. That is how they buried people, in stone caves, often sealed off with rocks. Was he already thinking of his own death here? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm, I'm saying yeah. he's... Perhaps in his heart and exactly. mind, he's, he's realizing this is, this is about to happen to me also. Um, and, and then he, he tells, uh, tells them, take away the stone. And the people are like, you can't do that. And it's going to smell it. They're, they're like, it, it's going to stink. <coughs> he's been dead four days. And we talked last week about what that means and how we know that Jesus delayed going on purpose, because he wanted those four days. He wanted to know that in the hot climate of their, uh, of their climate, and with no embalming, because the Jews didn't do that, there would be decay in a four-day-old body. And he wanted them to know that he not only, he, he could not only raise the dead. Remember these other stories? J- Jairus' daughter and the, the widow said they hadn't been to the point of decay. In fact, the daughter had just just died a little bit before he got there. And somebody might be able to say, oh, well, that wasn't really raising the dead. You know, that was, maybe they were just in a coma. You know, like people have said about Jesus when he hung on the cross that, oh, he didn't really die. He, there's no doubt here. This man is dead. Was there also yes. some belief at some point from the Jews that the spirit stayed around for three days and then so that at four days he was gone? I mean, the spirit was gone, everything was gone. Very interesting that you thought of that. That's true. There was this legend, if you will, or this superstition, I don't know what to call it, but this the belief by the Jewish people that the spirits of the dead would hover around the bodies. It's said by four days the body was so decayed that it was unrecognizable and then the spirit would leave. The reason it hovered around was that it would seek entrance to the body again, if you will. These were just things that they believed, common things that they believed. So 
yeah, there's some definite relationship. This first audience would have understood that. Isn't that fascinating? Now, there's also an understanding that why would they think about that? Why would this holy, why would this holy, uh, or the spirit hang around this body for four days? Let's think about that for just a minute. Um, just in case they were just in a coma. Okay. And what about the thought that they were, uh, the, the, these holy, these the dead? If they were truly holy people, there was an understanding and a belief that's, that they didn't really decay. I don't know if you remember back when we were studying, I can't remember when it was, I told you the story, it was one of the other books of the Bible, of the, of the New Testament. I told you the story of uh, St. Spiridon. St. Spiridon was one of the bishops who was, and the third, or the, the first ecumenical council of Nicaea. He was a bishop of the church in Crete, the island of Crete in that area. And... He was one of those that, you know, affirmed and signed the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. And, and uh, when he died, his body didn't decay. How do we know that? They actually dug him up because there was some argument over his body. And somebody cut off his hand. And they said, we're taking the hand with us. And the hand only was rejoined with the body, I mean, in the last century, okay, if I can't remember the date. Um, I think Rome had the hand in Rome for many, many years. But he is St. Spiridon, uh, a celebrated saint, especially in the Eastern Church, not, uh, not as much in the Western Church. But his, his body is buried, and it's said that there were miracles attached to the, when people dug up his body to cut off that hand. The people were miraculously cured. These are stories that are recorded in, in history, okay? And so if we're looking at that and we're going, oh, that sounds legendary, that doesn't sound possible, we need to remember that we have been affected. Our ability to embrace the mystery of God and to embrace things of old has been affected by being children of the modern era. I mean, really, from about the 17th, 18th century on, the enlightenment of human reason began to reject the whole idea of mystery and, and faith, you know, Really, that right. religion changed drastically in the period of the Enlightenment because it became more about, in the Western world, more about reason and, and what was uh, reasonable and not so much about faith and mystery. And science be became a real right. uh, entry in, into the, our thinking also right. at that time. So, if we think about St. Spiridon's story, let's think about it. There's a biblical, uh, there's a, even a biblical analysis to it. Um, I talked about Elijah and Elisha. You might not remember the story of Elisha. When Elisha died and was buried and put in a tomb, often these tombs, these cave tombs, had more than one person buried in them. Okay, they made good use of space. Well, there's a story in the book of 2 Kings in chapter 17 where some people are burying a guy and they're getting ready to bury him. And I don't remember the details of who it is. But they're getting ready to bury a guy, and there's some uh, raiders coming, some uh, bad guys coming, and they're in a hurry. So they just quickly toss the dead guy in to the tomb. And it's recorded that he touched the bones of Elisha, the great prophet, and immediately sprung back to life. Right there in the Old Testament, book of 2 Kings, our scripture. So why would we doubt that the miracle could happen around St. Spiridon's body in the Fourth century. It, you see, we just, exactly. but, but it's, we've got to, 
I, what I love about some of these, learning this ancient history of the Christian faith, is that it teaches us to step away from our modern age of enlightenment and reason and embrace the mystery of God and God's story. Because the scriptures are God's story to us, and they are truth. And I don't believe that would have been put in there about Elisha if it hadn't really happened. Just like I don't believe, there are some scholars that say Lazarus wasn't really raised from the dead. Do you realize that there are actually scholars that think this didn't happen? They say, you know, this isn't mentioned in any of the other three Gospels. If it was really important, if it really happened, the other three wouldn't have missed it. There's scholars that think that way. Again, skeptical of, of, of this uh, idea of really raising the dead, dead and the decaying flesh. So, St. Spiridon, to finish that story real quick, because I can't point you back to what podcast it's in. But if you, you can look all this up on the web and you can see it, but in there's a little tiny island off of the island of Crete called Corfu, C-O-R-F-U, Corfu. And his church where he's commemorated and buried is there in Corfu, St. Spiridon. And Spiridon is spelled S-P-Y, if you want to look it up, S-P-Y-R-I-D-O-N, I think, Spiridon. And uh, his body is commemorated in a coffin that has glass over the face. And the body is not decayed. It is, is turned. It, it? it is turned. No, because it was. No, because, I mean, it, it just. In the old days, air did get to it. It wasn't until centuries later that they were able to put it in a sealed coffin with glass. So it's only open for people to view a couple of times a year, I think. I don't know the exact times. But if you were a pilgrim to the island of Corfu, you could go to that church at the right time and you could actually witness and pray. And through the years, many miracles have been recorded in the presence of that body. And you look into that coffin and his skin is still there. Now, it's dark. It's darkened through the ages, but it didn't decay. And this we're talking about a person that died 1,700 years ago. How miraculous is that? That's a, yeah, wow, right. It's, it's miraculous. I, I love that God preserved things like that for us to, who think we're so smart because we can put a man on the moon, think we can figure out everything in our modern enlightenment. I love how God did that so that we could look at that and go, wow. And, they, and he was not embalmed. He was not preserved like, uh, who's the Russian guy that's still in a coffin, glass coffin? Lenin. 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 Vladimir Lenin, the communist uh, Bolshevik leader. Uh, you know, his body was preserved with, uh, in, one in China too, maybe? No, he's in Russia. He's in Moscow in the Kremlin. Vladimir Lenin. I saw Lenin. his body and I haven't been to Russia. Well, you saw somebody else's body probably because he's not Chinese. But I don't know why he would be in China. If he is in China, I don't know that he's in China. I can't imagine why he'd be in China. But he maybe one of the Chinese leaders has been preserved too. But Vladimir Lenin, you can go into the Kremlin and you can walk past his coffin today. It's a glass coffin, the whole thing. But that's through the miracle of embalming. Not the miracle of the Jews didn't practice that. And there's no belief that. So, so here is this amazing story. And there are other stories kind of like that. But what we want to do is we want to, we want to see them as powerful stories that help us embrace the mystery of our faith. And La the story of Lazarus, John is writing this as we've talked about. 
decades after, he's an old man, decades after the other Gospels have been written. He's not concerned with just telling another story of Jesus. He's not concerned with telling us some of the same stories of Jesus. He's concerned with writing a Gospel that teaches us who Jesus is. That's why he's filled with the metaphors, the light of the world, the bread of life, the Lord of life, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep. All these metaphors that John uses, we've been studying. Today we see him as the Lord of life, who can take even decaying flesh and raise it up. Isn't that amazing? Powerful. Well, look at the scripture. I told you I wanted to show you this. It's not content with my denying this up here. This just wants to keep popping up. I guess I'll hit allow. Maybe it'll just let. Maybe not. Okay, third time's the charm. This is an icon that you're looking at on the screen. It's called the icon of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. Okay? The icon of the raising of Lazarus. And... Let's look at some of the icons were not painted to be works of art. They were painted to tell stories of the faith. Now, they are works of art, but they're really telling stories. So there's little details and things, because this is how people learned in the earliest of centuries. People couldn't read. You went to the churches. The churches were filled with icons, and, and they told the stories of the faith. What's the, what's the uh, uh, building behind? Okay, so this would show that... What, what this is to show us is the, the city walls of Bethany. Oh, okay. So we're at the cemetery outside the city. Jesus had said he had to go a ways outside. So, and they didn't and have any burial grounds in, within the cities. Usually the they were outside, yeah. yeah. So here is, uh, here's Jesus right here in the front with his hand of blessing there. And uh, we see the, the uh, this is called a mandorla. The, sometimes you've heard maybe it's called a halo around mm -hmm. saints, a picture of it's in the Greek, it's a mandorla. And this shows the holy people, the saints. You notice it's around all the apostles. Okay, So we recognize the apostles from the other people in the crowd with Jesus. We see down here, probably Mary and Martha, both falling to their knees, weeping. Okay, uh, We see that Christ has given the command. You see this guy, what is this guy doing? Bent over, holding this. It's not a stone in this case. He's holding, well, it could be made out of stone, but it looks like a doorway to the entrance to the cave. He's, he's followed Christ's direction to remove the stone, if you will. And what do we notice by these people right in here? These are probably, remember there were professional mourners, there were people that followed around and came to mourn with them at, at the grave. What are they doing? Can you tell what they're doing? It looks like they're covering their nose. Yeah, that's right. Okay. One of them like got a, their hand clear on yeah. their nose. They're covering their nose because the icon wants to teach us that this was four days in the body. It stunk. Yeah. Okay? So, see these little details? Isn't that cool? One of them's even got his cloth up there over his nose. Got his full cloth up over his nose. That's right. And then, of course, we see Lazarus in the entranceway to the tomb, still bound in his bandages, bound in his bandages. And we know that our, our scripture today ended with this go unbind him and let him go. So that is about to happen. But I just wanted to, to kind of show you that icon today to show you how the early Christian, uh, really the, the fathers of the church and the, the pastors and the writers and everybody, they preserved the stories of Scripture through this. So if you're ever somewhere where you see an icon, 
you, you'll know it by its style. I mean, it's a very flat, dimensional type thing. It's, it's, there's a particular way that an icon is painted. And it always tells a story. So look at them fascinatingly and do a little research. And it tells, there's so much learning and teaching you can find from them. Okay, back to scripture. A couple of points that I, I want to make here out of this, out of this particular passage. Um, When Jesus said, take away the stone, and Martha, 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 the sister of the dead man, said to him, why do you think that John wrote the sister of the dead man? Why didn't she just say Lazarus' sister? Why didn't John just say Lazarus' sister? Were they all brothers and sisters? Um, as far as we know, Lazarus and Mary and Martha are just this brother and sister. And in other places, it's referred to as the brother or the sister of so-and-so. But he wanted to make sure that people knew, everybody knew he was dead. Exactly. Yeah. See, John's, John's giving us another little clue. This is a dead man, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. This is not just Lazarus, the brother. He's dead. And so this is repeated. You can see, uh, look down in verse 44 with me. In verse 44, the dead man came out. Now, if you and I were telling this story, we would have just said, Lazarus came out. Right? <laughs> But John, don't miss the little details that John gives us. That dead man came out. He came okay. back. Um, it, it, it's powerful, these little things that if we're not careful, we'll, we'll miss. I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the prayer that we see here. Um, Martha is Martha's telling Jesus. She's not trying to tell him what to do, but she's saying, but she's, she's humbly trying to say, but but he's been dead four days. In other words, you, you sure you want to do that? Don't do that. This isn't, this isn't helping, you know. We're mourning. We're grieving. Uh, why would we do that? She has no idea what he's about to do. She believes in him. She knows he's sent of God. She knows, but, but still, absent the power of the Holy Spirit, they can't really know who God in the flesh is, Christ but they're just asked to believe. They're asked to have faith. And he said, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see uh, the glory of God? And, and so you can imagine, okay, we do believe. Let's, let's do it. Let's do what he says. Let's take away the stone. And in that, in that moment, she's confessing. She's saying, I do believe. I don't understand, but I believe. Don't necessarily understand everything, but I do believe. And so the people take the stone away. And in that we see Jesus. Uh, it, it, it says in verse 41, and, and so as they took the stone away, Jesus lifted up his eyes to the Father. Why does it say Jesus lifted up his eyes? Why do we need that direction from John? Why doesn't it just say, and Jesus so prayed? would see that he was looking at, the, at God the Father. Okay, and, and is God necessarily up? Well, yeah, to, to me he is. I mean, that's for the, the area of where he comes from. God's everywhere. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, but they thought very spatially in that time. That's true. They thought very spatially. Oh, so. you know, the heavens were right here and above. And, but don't miss the fact that who's he? There's that thing again. <laughs> you just can't make that little notice on the computer go away, can no, you? No, you can't. Always use this response for this server. Let's just hit allow. Okay, maybe uh, three times, I'm sure. This is a story of threes here. It's a very 
Oh, it worked on the second yeah. time there. Okay, so, um, oh, what I was going to say. Look, who, where's he been talking to Mary and Martha? Down. They're at his feet. Mm -hmm. Okay? But when he needs to talk to the Father, John points us that he lifted up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, John's trying to show us his, his uh, positioning from Lord of Life, mm -hmm. talking to those that are worshiping him, to lifting up, talking to the Father. Okay, not not just to make us think, oh, God's up there, but God's everywhere. God's here in our hearts. But but He is God. But He's He's showing us. John's teaching us some reverence there, some lifting up. But do you do you think that that looking up that that is showing that God is everywhere? Um, yeah, I think He's just trying to point out that that God is. He's not He's not looking at them. Exactly. I'm not looking at you and just praying with my eyes open. He's making a directed prayer. And he's, his eyes are open. It says he lifted up his eyes. It doesn't say he bowed his head and closed his eyes. Yeah. You know, we've been taught since little kids, we bow our head and close our eyes. Remember that? Yeah. Maybe we should look up and open our were, eyes. Were you taught that? To bow your head and close yeah. your eyes when you were oh, kids? Yeah. Absolutely. I was. Fold your hands. Just yeah. Fold your hands. Yes. Um, Fold your hands. And nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Okay. But Jesus is praying with his eyes open. And his hands up, and probably his hands up, but his lifted up his eyes. Okay, so there's a, there's a, there's a reverence uh, that God is out out. God is is the author of all, the Father, if you will, outside and beyond. He's not just pointing the glory to himself here. And his prayer is an interesting one because he says, "I thank you, Father. I thank you that you heard me." Well, what is he saying when you've heard me? When did Jesus talk to the Father already? He's, he's just now starting to pray. He's talking to him probably within his mind, so to speak. He's, God already knew, but... Yeah, God already knows what he's thinking anyway, but... And, and in the four days ago, remember when the messenger came? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. He said, we, didn't read, we don't read it in that part like, a, like an actual prayer, but we know he says... This is this is going to be this will not end in death. This will be for the glory yeah, of God. So, so somewhere we know that he's already prayed in his heart. He's already he's communicating. Of course, he's, Jesus constantly communicating yeah. with the Father. So there's been communication between the Son and the Father about the raising of Lazarus. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, "I thank you, Father. You heard me." And and then he says, um, "Of course, I knew you would hear me because you hear me always." I didn't need to do this prayer for your sake, Father. I'm paraphrasing now. But I'm doing this so that these people right here, these dear ones right here, will believe. He's teaching them. Okay? He is God. Remember how he said, and we're going he's talked about his oneness with the Father. We're working quickly to a scripture where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I think that's going to come in chapter 14. I can't remember now, 13 or 14. But the point is, he's constantly teaching them. He only sees and only does and only says what he hears the Father say, do. Okay, say and do. He, God's actions, God the Father's actions, are Jesus the Son's actions. And Jesus the Son's actions are God the Father's actions because the two are one. This is our Trinitarian teaching. And he is again showing them here... Uh, that, that they may truly believe, and he wants them to believe that he was sent by the Father. Yes. So that he's you truly being an me. example for what they need to do too. And they are yeah. to believe, yes. I mean, and out loud. To pray and believe, what, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
So, when he's finished his prayer, it said he cried out with a loud voice. Why do you think he cried out with a loud voice? I mean, couldn't Jesus just say, Lazarus, come out? He wanted everybody to know that he has directed him to come out. Okay. Everybody that's in that crowd out there. Possibly. Okay. Possibly. Is there anything more, maybe? A little deeper that we don't want to miss? I'm sure he did want everybody to hear. You're right. But I think there's maybe something. Lazarus to hear, too. Or could Lazarus have, he could have raised Lazarus not without the hearing, though, mm-hmm. because he, he's Lord. He could have done it without even traveling to the tomb. He could have done it from where he was. So why, why, why with a loud voice? Remember, this is John is teaching us of Christ's humanity. Remember, he's deeply moved. It's probably an emotional response. Okay. I mean, we, we, must never, we must never forget that our God, one of the reasons why our God took on human flesh was so that he could not only redeem us, but he redeemed the material world and he embraces our life. He knows what we're going through. He knows what human emotions are. Exactly. He went through the full range of human emotions. Jesus went through the full range of human emotions. Yeah. Whatever, sadness, joy, uh, you know, everything you can think of in between, grief as we're learning in this, in this chapter. And there's that, I mean, this was probably an incredibly <coughs> emotional scene. When he yelled at he just cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I mean, it was powerful. So it wasn't just theatrics. He wasn't just trying to make sure they saw his power. Could have been joyous, too. Could have even had a little joyous ring to it. I mean, again, probably something powerful and emotional and human in that response. I just keep thinking what Lazarus must Mm. have felt. (laughs) I can't even imagine. Yeah. You know, standing... There, I mean, he had to have known he, he had. I mean, he comes out all wrapped up in stuff on his hands and feet. Like Wouldn't you love to talk with Lazarus? Oh, yes. Oh, I can't wait. Different. What was it like, Lazarus? What was it like? To, now I'm here. What was it like to be dead and then come back to life? Uh, or maybe one of those other, it said those saints in Matthew 27 that went into the holy city and it said they were seen by many. What they could have been to talk to them. What yeah. was it like? Oh, my. You know, this, this was a, this seals the deal, okay? As we're about to see when we, we'll get into it next week, but in the next part of this, uh, the last part of this chapter, we see the response of the people. And, of course, some of them believe, but some of them run to the officials and say, we got to do something about this guy. Yeah. I have so many people I want to talk to my first day. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> but, yeah, was that necessarily a good thing for Lazarus? Where did they go at that time? Did they have a heaven to go to? Wasn't he bringing him back into? Well, I think he brought. Yeah, I think he brought Lazarus in to die again. I mean, Lazarus had to die again. This and there's nothing that tells us Lazarus came out glorified. So Lazarus might have been in a much better place. Right, I'm sure he was. Yeah. So it would have been interesting to talk to him, wouldn't it? You got to see something that we don't. You got to see something we don't. Yeah, exactly. Jesus, there, there's some, there's some allegories, there, there's some allegorical meanings here that I want to, I want to share with you before we end today. I, I, I found, find this fascinating um, as we talk about this, this, some thoughts on the resurrection. We talked about the three resurrections, you know, the Jairus' daughter, the widows. Son and uh, 
this one, Lazarus. And I want to show, this was actually some thoughts by St. Augustine. Fourth century, okay, St. Augustine. Uh, some of the writers, some of the early church fathers, especially writing between the third and fourth centuries, were very, uh, especially coming from the school of Alexandria, that was in Egypt, okay? The school of Christian theology in Alexandria in Egypt. And that's where Augustine came from. Um, he was from that North Africa area, was a bishop of Hippo, which was in North Africa. And uh, much like others that we've quoted before, that, that particular school of theology are, have some of our best writers that have seen allegorical meanings in Scripture. So, again, some of our modern theologians and some of our modern scholars just reject all allegorical meaning of Scripture. And I think that's, that's, that's a bad thing. We don't want to say that Scripture is only allegorical. Of course, it can have a literal meaning as well, but, but we don't want to miss the allegorical meanings. What are allegorical meanings? Do we all clear with what I mean when I say allegorical meanings? They're, they're no. stories. Allegories are stories that have a deeper meaning that, okay. than just what is on the surface. Okay. okay. Um, there's a history. There, there's, a, there's a point behind the obvious point. Okay? okay. So the obvious point of the raising of these three is that they were dead and now they're alive. What's the allegorical meaning? Okay, listen to what Augustine says. Augustine said... If then the Lord in the greatness of his grace and mercy raises our souls to life so that we may not die forever, we may well understand that those three dead persons whom he raised in the body have some figurative significance, or the, uh, figurative means allegorical, some figurative significance of that resurrection of the soul that is affected by faith. He raised up the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, that's Jairus' daughter, the synagogue official, while she was still lying in the house. She had recently just died, in other words. He raised up the widow's young son while being carried outside the gates of the city, and he raised up Lazarus when four days in the grave. He said, now let each one of us pay attention to his own soul. Now, in sinning, we die. That's right, Lazarus, I mean, Augustine said, in sinning, we die. Sin is the death of the soul. But sometimes, sin is committed only in our thoughts. So, he goes on to say here, you have felt delight in what is evil, you have assented to its commission, and you've sinned in your thoughts, okay? And he says, that assent has killed you, but the death is eternal because the evil thought had not, but the death is eternal because the evil thought had not yet ripened into action. The Lord intimated that he would raise such a soul to life in raising the girl who had not yet been carried out for burial, but was still lying dead in the house as if sin was still concealed in the body. So you see the figurative meaning. When we're guilty of sin, but we haven't really, it hasn't really grown to full fruition, and it's not outside the body, we haven't committed it, you know, uh, there's a figurative allegorical meaning. But he still forgives that sin, and he still raises that soul back to life too. And then he says the second one, uh, he, he says here, but if you've not only harbored a feeling of delight for evil, but have also done the evil, okay, so to speak, you've been carried the dead outside the gate, you're already outside the gate and being carried to the tomb. 
Now he's saying the soul who's actually committed the evil is, is maybe in a different state of feeling and being and lostness and, and need of repentance than the one who's just merely assented to the sin in their thoughts. And so the boy who he raises from the, uh, the, the being carried outside the gate represents that figure of humanity in that level of sinfulness. Okay? And then he says, finally, Thirdly, he says, there is this, uh, if you have sinned and you've repented, uh, you're dead in the act, but you haven't yet repented. In other words, um, he says, you will be still raised. There's the third example of Lazarus. It's a horrible kind of death. It's distinguished as a habit of wickedness. So he's saying the third parallel with Lazarus is like the death, the life that is let sin reign. Not saying Lazarus did, okay, don't miss the figure here. Okay. Sin reigned to the point where it was habitual and it destroys in horrible death. Okay. And he says, even that, the one who falls into sin and immediately submits, uh, he says that it is a horrible kind of death and is distinguished as a habit of wickedness. For it is the one, for it is one thing to fall into sin, and another thing to form the habit of sinning. The one who falls into sin and immediately submits to correction will be quickly restored to life. For he is not yet entangled in the habit. He is not yet laid in the tomb. But whoever has become habituated to sin is buried, and is it properly said of him that he stinks? See the parallels here. The third form of sin, the one that's just living that life of sin, that dead life that stinks. Even that, Augustine says, Jesus Christ raises from the dead. So he sees in here the three resurrections, the three, re- three deaths, three resurrections, three parallels to how we all live. Whether we sin in our thoughts, whether we sin in our words and actions, and whether we sin in our very lifestyle. All of it. Is not None of it is beyond the reach of our Lord Jesus Christ, who can not only forgive, but indeed raises from the dead. I see that. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful parallel, I think. Um, some of the early church fathers are very good at reading the scriptures and seeing some of these deeper meanings that, that are uh, figurative, but yet very much uh, important for us to understand. There's a real message there that no matter how much we've sinned, no matter how much we've spiritually died, we're never beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. We're never beyond His grace. We're never beyond His forgiveness. We're never beyond His power to raise us Thank from goodness. the dead. Thank goodness. Praise the Lord. That's right. Yes. Amen. Um, so you see there's a lot in here. Um, it's not just a story about Oh, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd done that before. You know, there's a lot to this. There's a lot to those details. So we took a little time on this chapter, these first three parts of this chapter. Um, next week, as we move into next week, we'll finish the chapter, and uh, and, and we're going to talk about what this actual what what's the response of the people because they don't a lot of them don't like it. A lot of, it, it, it boggles my mind. That you could witness someone walk out of a tomb in bandages, dead, stinky, okay? Watch them unwrap him, 
see that he's perfectly whole and all of a sudden probably doesn't stink anymore. That you can watch that, see that, and then walk back into town and tell the people, we got to do something about this guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yes. I mean, that that blows my mind. Exactly. They're scared. Anybody could even... How far gone, how far gone the human can be into well, sin. It's very and obvious that there's they're that living in the world dead. today. They're living dead. So that's what's ahead of us next week. So let's, let's just stop and take a few minutes here. Any thoughts, questions? I always want you to feel free to ask questions. It's, I know I have a habit of talking a lot as a teacher, but you can always interrupt me. You can always ask questions, thoughts. So thank you for your comments. Anybody thoughts or comments about what you're hearing? This is fascinating. It is. Very fascinating. Well, the people that went back into the town to try to get Jesus in trouble, to me that was fear because they are living in de- death. They are walking right. and living and breathing in sin, and they wanted to deny it yeah. to try to get him in trouble, so to make it go away. Yeah. Well, if they believed him, then they are dead in their sin, mm-hmm. and they yes. know that. That's right. Well, if they believed him, he would forget mm-hmm. them. So they they want to put him down, so that they don't have to believe him. Mm-hmm. They also don't want to give up their power. Oh, yeah. Don't want to give up their power. Yeah. That's right. Well, I want to encourage you this morning, from the story of Lazarus, to look into your own life, into your own situation, into your own heart. Perhaps there's a situation in your life that seems beyond help. Perhaps there's a situation in your own belief that just you can't fathom it, how it could ever change, how anything could ever be made right again or done. Or maybe it's not you, maybe it's someone you love or someone you know. This story of the raising of Lazarus is a full and complete healing for us to believe that there's nothing outside the reach of our God. For sure. Absolutely nothing that he cannot do. Praise the Lord. We heard Jesus say it himself, with God all things are possible. All things. Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this class today. Thank you for your, your powerful word preserved through the ages in such powerful ways with such beautiful pointed details for us to learn from. And I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply them to our minds and our hearts as we go forth from this study. Help us to hear uh, from your Spirit how we are to live and how we are to repent and how we are to love and, and just help us to grow from this time of study. And we want to be very careful, Father, to give you all the praise for it is all to your glory uh, through the name of Jesus Christ our Lord who your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.